All right, <clears throat> tonight is the last night of Esther. So we're going to get the whole thing done tonight. I don't really know what we're going to do next, but we'll do something for sure. So as we come to the last chapter, really chapter 10 is only three verses. So you could say nine and the three verses of 10 is the last chapter. Um, and we've walked through the uh, providential happenings and the, the, the just so happen events that God has used to move this entire story all the way to its conclusion where he keeps his covenant promise to his people when it seems impossible to do so. Uh, they are um, uh, still exiled. They had an opportunity to return from exile, but they're still living in Persia, many of them. And the Persian Empire we saw was great and wealthy and powerful, and all power is, resides in the king, and it just doesn't look like there's any way that they could possibly overcome uh, the obstacle of the prime minister, Haman, who hated them and wanted to kill them and sent out a decree to kill them all, all through the Persian Empire. But also uh, the king's power and his might and the rules of the Persian Empire. But yet through subsequent events, not, not earthquakes or miracles or, or plagues or anything like that. But just through the everyday events of life and the decisions of people along the way in the story. We have seen God move and move miraculously um, to bring about his, um, his people, his covenant promise for his people. Uh, and the last thing that we read was that uh, uh, even people in the Persian Empire were declaring themselves Jews because uh, of God moving among them. What's something that's impacted you most about the book before we read the last chapter? The fulfillment of God's command. The film, fulfillment of God's command? The command that he gave Saul. The command that he gave Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. Yeah, we're going to talk a little more about that tonight. Anything else? Yeah, providence. If we look back and see some of the things that, that happened in our own life, we can see God moving in our life. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of sneaky at it. Yeah. He said, God, you can see God's providence moving all through the book, but you can also see it in our own lives. And providence is one of those things where it's hard to see when you're in the midst of it. But boy, you can look back and you can see God's hand just all over everything uh, in, in, the, in the things of our lives as well. So this last section of Esther is what we're probably going to consider anticlimactic, I guess. Uh, so it's probably, it may not be as suspenseful and drama-filled as all the rest of the book. Like the drama of the previous chapters really is over. All, all that remains now in this section is the record of how the decrees of Haman and how the decree of Mordecai played out. Y'all remember what those were? Do I need to explain them? Everybody with me? Okay. Um, there is, in chapter 9, there's, there's a noticeable change in style uh, as the writer writes, 9 and 10, really, 10 is only three verses. The book has, like we said, so far, chapters 1 through 8, I mean, the book read like a, like a suspenseful account of intrigue and mystery and how is this conflict going to be resolved and cliffhangers leaving you on the edge of your seat and all of this. But the last section reads more like a historical survey, like how the events happened. This is how it happened. And the change in style really is, is purposeful. It's, it's theological. Uh, chapter 9 really is going to show the Jewish readers um, the summary of all the events 
And it's going to show them why they celebrate a yearly festival known as Purim. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we get to it. So as we end at chapter 8, Haman was killed on his own gallows, you remember? And Mordecai was invested with Haman's position and his authority. And the king allowed Mordecai to write a decree saying that the Jews could destroy, kill, and annihilate uh, any armed force or any people that tried to harm them uh, on the day of Haman's decree. Y'all, everybody with me? Do I need to explain any of those decrees? Most of y'all been here? All right. At the end of chapter 8, when this new decree went out, there was celebration and joy. We saw that. All the Jews all over the, the empire celebrated and joy but, and, and rejoiced because the Jews were not left defenseless. And we were told, like I said earlier, that, that many in the Persian kingdom declared themselves to be Jews because it said, the last part of chapter 8 said, the fear of the, fear of the Jews fell upon them. Um, now as we continue, we're, we're given really just a historical account of the events of the fighting and how it happened and how this day led to the establishment of this festival. Any questions about the story so far before we move on? Yeah, it's, it's going to be real anticlimactic, but we'll, we'll work with it. So the first thing we have is we got a summary of the Jews' deliverance from the evil decree that Haman said that, you know, he, he decreed that they would all die. Verse 1 functions really as a summary, letting us know the whole story in one verse. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now, honestly, this is just a summary of everything that happened. But the outcome of this day really wasn't in question, was it? I mean, we pretty much knew what was going to happen because we'd seen God move all of the events of this book toward this. And when Mordecai's decree went forth saying that the Jews were allowed by the king to defend themselves against anyone that attacked him, including the Persian army or governors or regional powers or any of that, we, we pretty much knew because God had worked all of this together that God was going to fight for them as well. Uh, he had kept his covenant promise with his people. There's no way that they're not going to succeed. So on that day, <clears throat> when the decree was, was being carried out, um, when the enemy thought that they would conquer the Jews, the reverse occurred. Some of your translations will say the tables were turned. But I want to make sure before we continue on that you see why it was that the tables were turned, that the reverse happened, and the Jews gained mastery over those who hated him. Um, it wasn't because of their might or their fighting prowess or because they were such great warriors. Uh, though God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, the victory of the Jews in this day, in this battle of you know, bloodshed and all the things going on, it's God's work. God delivered them. And he delivered them by causing the fear of the Jews and the fear of Mordecai to come upon the enemies of God's people. It says that in verse 2. It's the fear of the Jews. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. Why? For the fear of them had fallen on all of the people. It wasn't because they were just so great at fighting. 
Now, with this language, the fear of them fell on all people. You kind of see a theme that occurs repeatedly in the Scripture. God is often said to have caused fear to fall upon the the armies and the enemies of his people in various places in in the Old Testament. Uh, Even in the New Testament, you know, as uh, Ananias and Sapphira were killed in uh, in the the church service in Acts chapter 5. It says the fear, fear fell upon all the people. But here, it wasn't... The fear that fell upon all the people in the Persian Empire wasn't through angels or earthquakes or miraculous things. It was through circumstances, through the change in power, the decree that went out that says the Jews are able to fight for themselves, to defend themselves. God had caused fear in the hearts of those who hated and opposed and wanted to attack his people. And not only that, but the governors themselves, like the the, the governmental officials working under the king and the Persian leaders, they didn't dare marshal organized troops against the Jews because we're told in verse 3 that they were afraid of Mordecai. It says all the officials of the province, providence, the, them things, and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents, look what they did. They helped the Jews. Why? Because the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Why were they afraid of Mordecai? Because he was what? He was powerful. How powerful was he? Second in command. And he was second in command because what station did he take? How did he get to be second in command? Yeah. Start the book. He is at the city gate. The decree goes forth. He's in sackcloth and ashes, wailing through the city, through the providence of God and all of these actions. The enemy of the Jews, who is Haman is said to be the enemy of the Jews three or four times in this book, is dead now through providential events. And Mordecai, in the last chapter, has taken his house, taken his office, even taken the signet ring of the king. He is the most powerful man in the Persian Empire under the king. Boy, it's amazing how quickly political powers can change, isn't it? Now all the Persian governors, all the leaders, they decided we're going to help the Jews. They're afraid of Mordecai and the power that he wielded as the prime minister of Persia. God truly is in control. And though, you know, it the might of the Persian Empire throughout the book looked like it was just it was just overwhelmed the Jews and they were no match for the wealth and the grandeur and the, the power and the um, authority of the king. Remember, he's, king gives a decree, it can't be taken back. And we saw that from the very first chapter of Ec, uh, Exodus, of Esther. Um, it just looked like there's no hope. There's no way that this can be turned around. But God, through this book, worked the tiny everyday events so that now Mordecai would not only come to publicly identify himself with God's people, remember he and Esther were hiding the fact earlier, but that he would also rise to the highest power under the king of Persia. Has God ever caused another Jewish guy to rise to power on a second only to a king? Joseph. Joseph. Yeah. God is in control. And if he so deems it, the king's hand is a stream of water. The king's heart's a stream of water in God's hand. He can do whatever he pleases and often does, always does. But he rose to the highest power, so no one at the beginning of this book, if you're reading it for the first time, would have ever thought 
that this would be possible. This would be the way that things worked out. But God used it all. Why? To keep his promise to his people. They're not going to be wiped out. Now, what lessons do we learn from that in our own lives? God's providential working, God's control of all things, God working for the good of his people, keeping his word. Those are pretty easy applications. Somebody give me one. Okay, we'll go on then, I guess. <laughs> and because fear fell upon them, the people that were coming to harm the Jews, and they were, they were defending themselves, fear fell upon them. The Jews conquered those who came out to slaughter them. Verse 5 says, The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Now it appears that the majority of the per Persians refused to fight uh, because of the fear of the Jews, the fear of the decree of Mordecai, the fear of Mordecai. However, there, are still, there still came out some who hated them to destroy them. And we're told the reason they came out to destroy them, because they hated them. You know, maybe they were still people loyal to Haman. We don't know. We're not told. But for whatever reason, there was still a large segment of people in the empire who hated the Jews and sought to destroy them. But the way this, this verse is phrased, this summary, verses 1 through 5 are really this kind of summary of all the events. The way it's phrased, it's as if the Jews didn't have any problem overcoming them. It says they, they struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and even says they did as they pleased to those who hated them. It's, it's phrased in such a way that they didn't have any trouble. I'm sure that's probably, you know, the guy, the guy with the sword in his hand swinging it, fighting in the fighting probably would disagree. But in God's providence, they, they, it, it wasn't even a contest. That's why this is so anticlimactic, because we're not told of the struggle, of the fight. Of, we're just said, and they won. They won. They, they beat them. They destroyed those who hated them. The Lord was fighting for his people. That's why. The Lord was fighting for his people just as he promised. Now, verses 1 through 5 are kind of like a summary of all the events. God's enemies were defeated all through the Persian Empire instead of the Jews being slaughtered as Haman intended. And God's people received rest, in a sense, from their enemies. Now, in the next part, the, the chapter moves to give some of the details of the fighting. In verse 6 through 10, we're going to read it all as one section. It says, In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also killed that guy and the other guy. Those 10 names right there. I could try to pronounce them, but I'd probably mess it all up. And those 10 guys are the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid, the Jews laid no hands on the plunder. There's a whole lot in that section right there. So not only, notice first that the only people killed in Susa, the city. Now, this is not the province. This is the city of Susa, the capital city. Um, it was just the men. 500 men were killed in Susa. You remember the original decree of Mordecai? Yeah, it mirrored the language of Haman's decree saying, kill the men, the women, the children, anybody who comes against you. But God's people fighting for their survival, in a real sense, is what's happening here. They only killed the men who attacked them. Um, so you see, I, I take from that just restraint that they, this is not a picture of the Jews going on a bloodthirsty, you know, free for all. They 
only fought those who came against him to harm them. And in Susa, is 500 men, 500 people in the city of Susa, along with the 10 sons of Haman. Now, with the death of the 10 sons of Haman, you know, he's lost his sons, he's lost his position, his estate, all the things that he boasted in. Remember when he went home to his family and he boasted about all the things, including his life? He's dead too. Remember, he was hanged on his own gallows. Why is it important for the writer to tell us that the ten sons of Haman were killed? Wipes out his whole heritage. That's true. Why is that important? That we know. What are we, what are we being told right here? Just that we need to kill his whole family that way nobody will take revenge? It's possible. Yeah. He's showing us, the writer's showing us, that God is able to do what he says even centuries after he says it. Haman was a descendant of who? Agag. Agag was the king of who? The Amalekites. Remember way back in Exodus, said the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Excuse me. <clears throat> and Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And then in Deuteronomy, when they were about to go into the land, Moses said, remember what Amalek did to you on the way that you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, here's the command. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And then he says, don't forget. Did they do that? No, they did not do that. They did not obey the Lord. And then later, King Saul, as we referred to earlier, Samuel told King Saul when they were marching through, Samuel said, 1 Samuel 15, 3, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And did Samuel do it? No, he didn't. That's the, that's the whole time where, where he, Samuel runs up and says, Why didn't you kill all these animals? Why didn't you kill the king? And ultimately Samuel killed Agag. Here, what we see, because we were told specifically in the book that Haman is a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites, what we're told is that Esther and Mordecai and these events during the time of Esther fulfilled what Saul failed to do, fulfilled what Israel failed to do when they entered the land. For centuries, God's promise to wipe out the Amalekites went unfulfilled because of the disobedience of his people. But here, Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews fulfilled that promise. Did they know they were fulfilling it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Part of me says no. Part of me says yes. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I guarantee you that all of the events leading up to this, they didn't know that they were fulfilling it. Fulfilling it. But here they do. So we see what you see in the death of Haman's 10 sons is not just retribution. It's not just let's kill them all so they won't come back and you know, take revenge on us. What we see is God's promise of judgment 
is just as trustworthy as his promise of deliverance. You know, we've been banking on the promise of deliverance this whole time, right? They can't, all the Jews can't be killed and die and be wiped out because God made a covenant. He made a promise. And we've been banking on that word of the covenant all of this time. But here we also see that God's word of judgment holds true too. He said way back when, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, I'm going to wipe out the Amalekites. And here he did. So his word is faithful. But look at this. And this is why I say I don't know whether they knew or not. Because the last part of verse 10 says they laid no hand on the plunder. They took none of the plunder after they won the victory over their enemies. Even though... If you remember, Mordecai's decree allowed them to do so. Remember, Mordecai's decree, his decree matched Haman's. He said they could defend themselves, they could wipe out anybody who was attacking them, and they could have all of their property, they could seize all of their plunder. And the fact that they laid no hand on the plunder is so important that the writer's going to repeat it two more times in this chapter. He's going to say it over and over again. Not only did the people in Susa not lay their hand on the plunder, but none of the Jews across the empire laid their hand on any of the people's plunder, uh, their stuff, that, you know, after they killed the people who were seeking to do them harm. Why? Mordecai's decree allowed them to do it. Why didn't they? Let me just tell you. We're going to have a discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. She asks because of what he told Saul. And this is why I think, I can't prove this. So this is just me thinking out loud. It may not be true. I don't know. Nobody knows. But if the Jews understood this fighting, this battle, as God's judgment on the Amalekites, God's command of a holy war, then the spoils of it were to be completely devoted to God alone, just as he told Saul in the first place. Don't take it. You kill all their sheep, all their cattle, all their stuff. Don't take any of their stuff. It's all devoted to me. And you don't let any of them live. Just as Saul command, God commanded Saul originally. Um, I don't know. We can't, there, there's no way I can be sure. And to be honest, it's hard to think that some far off Jewish family in India somewhere or in Kush somewhere would recognize that this is a battle against the Amalekites. So you could just say the Lord stirred their hearts to not take the plunder to fulfill his promise. I'm not sure, but the fact that they laid no hand on the plunder fulfills the original mandate of God's um, war against the Amalekites from the very beginning. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You understand what I'm trying to say? Okay. Israel was judged several times uh, for not devoting the spoils to God when God commanded it to be done or a city or a people to be wiped out. Remember Achan and Joshua took items from Jericho and all of Israel were punished. Saul, we've already talked about him, took the spoils from the Amalekites and God took the kingdom from him because of it. Here, for whatever reason, whether it was God stirring their hearts or because they realized what was happening what we see is the Jews fulfill the righteous requirement of devoting all to the Lord, showing that they, you know, they could have seen this as a fulfillment of God's command or God was just fulfilling his command through them. And their victory was a deliverance from God. I can't prove it, but that's what I think. 
It's really hard to explain, isn't it? It's hard to explain maybe the people in Susa because they're right there and they know Mordecai. They know all. It's hard to explain how nobody, we're going to, we haven't even read the text yet, but later on in the text, it's going to say nobody in the whole empire where all the fighting was taking place, nobody laid hands on any of the plunder. It's hard not to have a, at least one Aiken running around there somewhere, don't you think? <laughs> but they didn't. Next, the death toll in Susa is reported to the king. And this is, this is the hand of the Lord, too. It says, the very day, that very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the kings, 500 men. And the king said to Queen Esther in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, if you stop right there, it sounds like, oh no, what has happened? But then he says, now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Now that's strange. Don't you think it's strange that he seemed more impressed than upset that 500 people are killed? He says, man, I wonder what, wonder what the rest of the provinces look like. Anything else you want? Anything else I can do for you? I mean, later in the text, we're going to find out 75,000 people are killed all over the empire. The, the Jews killed. That they tried to attack them through the whole empire. And he's impressed. What kind of king would react this way? He doesn't value people. He doesn't value people. Yeah, he's not... He's not Esther doesn't paint him as very intelligent, very decisive, or certainly not very moral. Yeah. But he is, a, he is a king whose heart is in the hand of the Lord. And so he asks Esther what else she wants. Now, if you're Esther, what do you say? You know, I want a new fur coat, and I want... Uh... Esther says... If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Yeah. You go, Esther. They're already dead. Yeah. So here's the thing. And we'll, we'll discuss it if you want to. Debate still rages about whether Esther was right or whether she was wrong to ask for another day of fighting in Susa and for the sons to be hung on the gallows. So technically, here's, here's, the, she, here's the argument for she was wrong. Technically, according to Haman's decree, remember, there's only one day that the people could attack the Jews. So technically, on this next day, the Jews are safe. They can't, nobody can attack them because Haman's decree didn't say. So why does she decree another day? We don't know for sure. Tell me what you think. I think she consulted her uncle. Think she consulted her uncle and he wanted more fighting? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We don't know why, but I'm just, what do you think? Why? Show the power of the Lord. Yeah, how he truly was with them. How he was with them. Maybe. Yeah, wanted to get the ones that got away. There's no way for me to know. There's no way for us to know. But there could have been many more people loyal to Haman and that hated the Jews in Susa. So Esther's request shows that she too, it, this is possible. This is, I'm putting a whole lot in here that's not written. So 
take it for what it's worth and we can debate it. Nobody knows. We don't know. But it's possible that she also sees this event, this happening, as um, not just a day to protect yourself, the survival of the Jews, but a God-ordained opportunity for Israel to destroy the enemies of God's people in Persia and to fulfill God's command to wipe out the Amalekites. But that still leaves the sons, ten sons dead, lying on the ground, why have them hung up, presumably, on the same gallows that are, their dad was hung up on? A warning, maybe? A warning? I mean, I don't know what else it could be. I mean, they're already dead, so it's not execution. How high was the gallows? 75, 75 feet. And Haman had it built for Mordecai so everybody in the city could see Mordecai. Well, this is what happens when you don't bow down to me. And now, Haman... And his ten sons are going to be hanging from that gallows for the whole city to see. So it's possible that Esther understands or thinks or believes that God wasn't just letting the Jews survive. He wasn't just letting them, he wasn't just doing all this with Mordecai and the decree and letting them fight back in the, not just so, so they would survive. He was giving them rest from their enemies and those who would even think about attacking them in the future. So all of the people who attacked the Jews died in the one day and the second day in Susa. And as a reminder, you got the 10 sons of Haman hanging up on a 75-foot gallows all over the city. Um, that's a pretty big deterrent. So... Ultimately, we don't know why. There's no way I can say this is why she did it because we're not told. But the king grants her request and they fight in Susa for another day. Verse 14 says, so the king commanded this to be done another day. And a decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa. So 500 the first day, 300 the second day. But they laid no hands on the plunder, once again. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies. That's why I think Esther may have saw this as not just survival, we're getting freed from our enemies. Got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But once again, third time in this chapter, even the ones in the provinces laid no hands on the plunder. Now, 75,000 people sounds like, a, well, it is a lot of people, but it sounds like there were 75,000 Persians arrayed across the battlefield against how many ever thousand Jewish peoples. But that's not, I don't think that's how this went. Remember, we were told that the king ruled over 127 provinces. If you divide 75,000 by 127, what do you get, math whizzes? Come on. Huh? Uh, I think it's more like 580, 590. I could be wrong, but my calculator told me that. So a little less than 600. So 127 provinces spread out all over the known world. 500, between five and 600 people killed in each province. It's not a huge battle, you know? So six, there's 800 people killed in Susa. More people's killed in Susa than the average that would be in the rest of the province. Now, 
here's the thing. We don't know. There, there could have been thousands gathered in one province and nobody gathered in another province. We, we just don't know. But just taking it as if they were fighting all over the empire and all the provinces, it probably wasn't a huge, huge battle in one place, but a lot of little bitty ones. But that number seems really high. But in the context of the whole empire, it may not have been that huge in each province where the fighting was taking place. That's kind of uh, up to uh, verse 16 is kind of the details of the battle. The rest of the chapter is going to talk about the establishment of this feast called Purim. Is there any questions about the fighting, the battle, Esther's decision to hang the sons, any of that? I told you this is a little anticlimactic because it's really just kind of a historical account. Yes? Yeah, uh, she asked if the 300 people they killed the next day were still attacking them, those people trying to get their stuff. Um, I would assume so, because the original decree of Mordecai was that they were to kill, destroy, annihilate any of them, any force, armed force or people that sought their harm. So I would assume so, yes. Oh, yeah, it was. It was that day. Yeah. Haman's was one day. The, was it the 14th month of Adar or whatever? And Mordecai said, on that day, you can fight back. So what we see is Esther specifically asks permission to have it on another day. You know, to do one more day in Susa, just assuming, let's get them all. You know, I, we don't know why. And all of this leads to the the establishment of this feast and why it's a celebration on two days rather than just one day. Scott, do you have a question? Okay, go ahead. Haman's decree killed men, women, children, and plunder. One possibility is the Jews are going, look, all we want to do is defend ourselves. We're only going to stoop to Haman's level. Maybe so. If you didn't hear that, he said Haman's decree was that the Persians, anybody who wanted, could kill men, women, and children of the Jews and take all of their plunder. And the Jews, in defending themselves and uh, fighting against that, didn't stoop to their level, but took the more moral road in only killing men and not taking any of the plunder. That, I mean, that's very, it's plausible and it's probable, actually. Um, <clears throat> the only thing is they did it, I think you're right, but they did it in opposition to the decree Mordecai gave because he gave the same decree Haman did, just flop, said you can, you can defend men, women, and children, you can plunder them, you can do it, and they didn't do any of that. So, yeah, yeah. Any other questions before we move on? Are you glad we're almost done with this? Sir? <laughs> All right, 17 says... This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th day 
and rested on the 15th day, making that day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting and a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Okay, do you see what he's saying there? It's a little convoluted. Okay. He says, the day, the, the, basically the day of death that Haman had decreed had come and gone. People of God still lived. God had kept his covenant. People rejoiced and celebrated the deliverance that they'd been given, the relief from their enemies, as it was said earlier. Uh, those who fought only on the one day in all the provinces celebrated on the next day. And those who fought for the two days that Esther asked for in Susa celebrated the day after those two days. See what I'm saying? Everybody got it? That's kind of an important detail because what started as a spontaneous celebration, a day of gladness and rejoicing, became an annual festival for the Jews. Verse 20 says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the province of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. So we're, not told, we're told the name of this feast in a minute. It's Purim. But it's not one that's commanded by God. It's not a feast or festival or celebration that's commanded by God, but it's one instituted by the decree of Mordecai. But it's still celebrated today. Do you know that? Purim, you ever heard of it? So all I know about it is what I read. So if what I read is wrong, then I'm sorry, but I don't have any, I don't have any experience or inside information about this. What I read was today Jews around the world celebrate Purim on one day, the 14th day of Adar, sometime in March, I think. And except for those living in cities that were walled during the time of Joshua, Jerusalem, Hebron, Jericho, those cities, they celebrate Purim on the 15th day. Whether that's true or not, I have no idea. That's just what I, what I read. And on that day, there's lots of drinking. There's joyous celebration. The entire book of Esther is read in the synagogues. And there are loud noisemakers used while it's being read said that people cheer when Mordecai's name is mentioned, and people boo when Haman's name is mentioned. It's a feast of, it's just a, uh, a time of celebration. And still going on today. And the events that are celebrated are related once again in a summary form, and then we're told the name of this feast in the next verses. It says, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. They sell, oh, let me read this. 22, year by year, as the day, I put the wrong verse up there. That had been turned from sorrow to gladness, from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, gifts to the poor. Okay, I should have already read that. Now I'm going to read 23 through 28, and we're going to move through it really quick right here. It says, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. So now it's an official decreed holiday. For Haman, and this is why, this is just a rehash of the events. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it, was, but when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that... He and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days 
Purim. In Hebrew, when you want to make something plural, you add I-M to it. So seraph, seraphim, cherub, cherubim, pur, purim, after the term pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly Somebody read it. Obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at that time appointed every year. So Purim, the word poor really comes from, it's not originally a Hebrew word, it's a Babylonian word and it means lot or die or, you know, like dice. Uh, and it refers to the die that, or the lot that Haman cast. You remember we talked about that when, to determine the day that the Jews would be slaughtered. But of course, we also, when we talked about that, we talked about the fact that Proverbs tells us that the die is cast in a lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So this, this is a celebration of a day by lot that was given for the Jews' destruction, but a day uh, by God's hand that was given not just for survival, but to have relief from their enemies. So this is, this is kind of a summary of the Lord's deliverance and the reason for this celebration. But if you notice in the descriptions of the celebration as it's described, nowhere is the praise of God for his deliverance mentioned or reminder to tell your children of God's faithfulness or God's covenant as it is in the other feasts. That's strange, but, but the book of Esther presents God's hand at work behind the scenes all the way through. And I think that the author of Esther intends us to read this as a deliverance, not just a well-fought battle. Um, and then we got to move quick or we're not going to get done. There's a record of a second decree given by Queen Esther. And there's a lot of debate about why she does this. But it says, oh, I should have read that too. Dead comment. That these days should be kept. This was part of remember and keep throughout every generation, every clan, province, city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the co- uh, commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. That was part of the last section. Now, Queen Esther, Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to the fast and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So really what you have here is after it's all said and done, Mordecai sends a decree, this is a new holiday, the Jews accept it as a new holiday, then Esther herself sends a decree that affirms and confirms Mordecai's decree. Now, just without... Without much detail, I think what you're seeing here is Esther coming into her own, acting as her own authority as she's done over the past several chapters as the queen. No longer she under the instruction of Mordecai or anyone else. She has taken her God-given, in a real sense, role as queen of Persia. And the book ends, the last three verses of chapter 10, last three verses of the book, it ends on a very, very strange note. It says this, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might, King Ahasuerus, 
and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And that is the last verse in the book of Esther. Mordecai is hailed as great, seeking the welfare of God's people, great leader, spoke peace to his people, sought their welfare. But after it's all said and done, their deliverance from their enemies is accomplished, but it isn't perfect and it's not complete. They still live under the authority of King Ahasuerus. And they're still servants of a wicked ruler paying taxes to him. They weren't delivered from the demands of life under a pagan king. Yes, things are surely way better because second in command is this Mordecai who seeks their welfare and speaks peace to them and seeks their good. But they weren't, they weren't delivered from the demands of life under a pagan king. Remember chapter 1, the king's palace filled with gold and riches, so much so it said that the chairs that people sat on were made of gold, yet here at the end he's imposing a tax on everybody, including the Jews. So when all is said and done, King Ahasuerus is still in charge. And he is not painted very favorably all through this book. He's still exercising his power for his own ends. So I think the book of Esther shows us, man, a, I say miraculous, but it's really providential. But to me, it's amazing, which makes it miraculous. This providential deliverance for God's people. But it was only temporary and it was only partial. So even at the end of the book, we're left with the question, is God going to bring full and complete deliverance forever? You see where I'm going? <laughs> when, when God's people have true and full deliverance, the king's name won't be Ahasuerus. And that deliverance has come in King Jesus, who rules and reigns on his throne. Before he ascended, he said, all power and authority is given to me. Amen. Complete deliverance of all God's people and all of creation will come when our king returns. Amen. Now, there's several things we can take away from the message of the book of Esther. So just as the Jews lived under Persian rule and among enemies all around them plotting their destruction, we live in a fallen world facing hostility and the suffering of this creation and like the people during Esther's time, we are sometimes tempted to ask, you know, is God still with us during all this hardship? Will God still keep his word when it, it just doesn't seem possible that it could possibly happen? There's no way. Can we trust his promise when everything looks like it's moving in the opposite direction? Well, we have his perfect promise in Romans 8, he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ, our King, our Priest, Jesus our Lord. But in the final analysis of Esther, we see the reactions of Mordecai. We see the reactions of Esther. We see the reactions of the Jews as they were suffering and lamenting and they... 
How do we hold on to the truths of God's providence, God's rule, God's control over all things, God's working for good for his people when we're getting battered by the events of this life and it doesn't look like it's possible that anything can change the tide of the way things are moving? We do so by faith. And I want to remind you of a text we're going to get to in Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. But look at this. It's the conviction of things that you can't see. Amen. Nobody in the book of Esther, all the way up until Mordecai decides to go to Esther and say, you have to intercede for the king. Nobody thought it was any way possible to gain standing and power and benefit and good in the Persian Empire. There's too much power. There's too many wicked people in place. Remember, the king had his seven guys, and they were all out for himself. Haman is brought to the, the height of power, and he hates the Jews more than anybody else. It is an impossible situation. But God made a promise. God made a covenant. And by faith, have the conviction that it will be so, even though you can't see it. As we trust that God often works through just the regular, everyday things of this life, and we trust that God's word cannot fail, we should also, even more so than the Jews who celebrate Purim today, we should be people who are filled with thanksgiving and gratitude, knowing that I have no idea how it's going to happen, I have no idea how it's going to work out, but I know, uh, I think it was, um, was it Peter? No, it was Paul on the ship that was about to be shipwrecked. He said, I have faith that it's going to happen exactly as the Lord told me. We can trust in him. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? Nope. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we'll start next week. I'm thinking, I'm thinking real strongly about Zechariah. Let us get into like a, a really prophetic book and wade through some of that prophecy a little bit. I'm not sure yet. Is that it? All right, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for who you are and that you are in control. God, as we've seen through the entire book of Esther, as we walk through from chapter one all the way to chapter 10, God, you have uh, moved providentially in the tiniest of things to assert your will, to bring your word to pass, to bring your word of faithfulness, your covenant promise to pass, but also to bring your word of judgment to pass. God, your word will never fail. And God, help us just to be faithful. Help us to have hearts of faith that rejoice in thanksgiving, knowing that you are God alone and that your word supersedes every ruler, every power, every government, and everyone who would stand against it. God, we don't expect to live this life without suffering. We don't expect to be freed from every trial or every hardship. But in the end, God, we know that your word will come to pass and that you are working everything for our good. So God, help us to, help us to be thankful in all things and to rejoice in all things because we know that you are our God and we are your people in Jesus Christ. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.